Let's go. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Okay, so looks like we are live and kicking, ready to rumble. Hello, 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 ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to VUX Worlds. I am delighted to be joined by the Zamo team with us today, Guy Tonye and Stacey Kyler. Welcome to VUX World. Thank you very much. How is yeah, things? Thank you for having us. No worries, no worries. Oh, I got a bit of cross uh, cross talk there on the, on the live broadcast. So, how's things then? How's it going, uh, Stacey? We're still, we're just saying there that your your usual residence is over in Hawaii, which sounds <laughs> looking out my window right now sounds like an absolute dream. Um, but you've managed to you've managed to fit some travel in to see the fam then. I have. After a year and a half of not seeing my parents, I am back on the mainland in the heartland, actually. Grew up on a farm, so uh, taking the kiddos around and showing them the cornfields and good to be home. Nice, nice. And Guy, you're, you're in the uh, the AI capital of the world, seemingly, at the moment, Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, it is, and it's pretty nice uh, out here, and uh, definitely a lot of interesting things happening, uh, so really happy to uh, be a part of that. Nice, nice. So um, thank, thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm really appreciative of, of you spending a bit of time with us and looking forward to delving into to all things Zamo. Uh, we'll get into uh, you know the, the, the ins and outs of the platform, I'm sure. Um, we can have a chat about the, the industry, the lay of the land, some of the insights that you've been picking up and learning from, from working in the industry. Uh, and I'm definitely keen to get onto the topic, which is the title that we've used for this, which is the importance of owning your own NLU, which I am super keen on because there's a lot of platforms propping up, a lot of players popping up, a lot of different NLU providers, this and the other. So I'd be interested to get your uh, perspectives on on the importance of that and, and how you recommend people go about doing it as well. Um, but before we kick off, before we get into all of that good stuff, uh, Stacey, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you do at, uh, at Zamo? Absolutely. So hi, everyone. My name is Stacey Kyler, and I am the head of customer success at Zamo. So uh, I have a really exciting role in that I work closely with Guy, uh, product related, but really bringing in the voice of the customer to our product and uh, get to spend a lot of time dealing with our customers and helping them to uh, most of our customers, for the most part, are relatively new to conversational AI. And so getting to kind of help them learn that process develop really good um, routines and um, processes for that and introducing them to Zamos cross-platform solution. So that is, that's kind of my role and what I do at Zamos. So I can turn it back over to, to Guy. Cool. Guy, tell us a bit about yourself what you, and what you're up to at Zamo. Uh, so I'm leading the engineering at uh, Zamo. So really focusing on uh, try to understand how we could bring the best of breed of technology into a tool that will help uh, bring more uh, great conversational AI applications uh, out there. And uh, it's been uh, really uh, um, a sweet ride and uh, a lot of learnings to actually understand how uh, to turn technology into concrete use case application. Mm. Nice, nice. And how would you describe Zamo then to someone who is um, maybe aware of conversational AI platforms, maybe is aware of the technologies, let's say that they're familiar with Dialogflow, let's say they're familiar with the bot framework and, and Lex or what have you, the Alexa skills kit. Uh, and then maybe they're familiar with platforms like Cognigy, Speakeasy, Boost, you know, Teneo. How, how would you describe what Zamo does 
to to those kind of people who have a bit of knowledge and are kind of aware, but but maybe haven't used it before. Stacey, you want to take that one? Sure, sure. I'll start from uh, the layman's terms. And then if Guy wants to get a little more technical with the the audience, he can do that. So uh, the way that XAML compares to those other uh, platforms that you've just described is that uh, a true cross-platform tool for businesses. So if you think about every business wants to get on conversational AI, but there's that struggle of do I start a chatbot? Do I get on Google or Alexa? Or do I focus on my IVR solution? And then if you want to do multiple of those, managing that content across all of those channels. And so Zamo is a SaaS platform that allows you to create conversational AI content and then deploy it simultaneously to all of those different platforms. So you can create Q&A content, you can create multi-turn conversations, you can go deeper and connect to APIs, uh, backend systems, etc. Click a publish button and have that content live on uh, Google, Alexa, a website chatbot, other popular chatbot platforms, as well as IVR. So hopefully that helps to summarize what Zamo does as a solution, Kane. Cool, cool. We've got uh, Jeroen Funk, who's saying, uh, great to see you, Kane, and Stacey and Guy also, of course. Nice one, Jeroen. Nice to see you too. Hello. Uh, if you do have any comments or any questions uh, for the Zamo team, do feel free to stick them in the comments, and we'll do our very best to uh, to put them to them. So, so Guy, it, it, would you describe Zamo then as more of the the kind of distribution layer that distributes out to those various platforms, or is it also a kind of technology platform in its own right that has its that has its own kind of technology behind the scenes? What's what's going on kind of uh, under the hood, so to speak? I would say both. Uh, so there's definitely an aspect of uh, distribution. Uh, so what Stacy mentioned is one of the big pain points that we've seen, which is getting to a channel can be a process. We, uh, some of the people in the audience may be familiar with the uh, challenges of submitting an application for Google or Amazon, or uh, just the uh, idea of bringing up um, technology so that it's available for an IVR, so interactive voice response. So those are the numbers that you call and then you can talk to an agent. But uh, one of the key things here is also that it's making available an actual technology where you can create uh, a language model and virtual agents. And I think the key here is not so much the distribution, which is already good. It's the fact that you can have in a single place a virtual agent that can be distributed across the different channels. So having all the capabilities that people may be familiar with, language model, natural language understanding, natural language generation, have that available and have the distribution capabilities, both of them combined in a single place. And what Stacey did not add in her description is the speed. So all of the complexity of each, because you can all imagine uh, every time you submit on one platform, you have to bring in your snippet for your chatbot code, all of these different things. All of that is solved just to for you to focus on creating your application and making it available as fast as possible. Nice. <clears throat> nice. And so who's the typical user of the platform then? Is it is it more of a developer? Is it more of a designer? Like who, who's the ideal uh, person who uses it, Stacey? 
We have three different categories of customers, I would say, that are most common. One is the business user, right? The the owner of the content. And that's what's so great about Zamo is that we uh, we put this ability into the hands of the business user that actually has the knowledge to, to build that content. And so that would be number one. Number two is when these businesses want to go deeper, they want to do those API connections, back-end system integrations, et cetera, that's when we we see IT departments or developers getting involved in helping with that as well. And then third would be we have a lot of different agencies that work with Zamo, and they are building uh, conversational AI solutions for their customers. So those would be the three main categories of folks that are using our platform. Nice. And out of the... Um well, maybe let's go back behind the scenes again in a minute, but out of those kind of channels that you mentioned, you know, you mentioned IVR a couple of times, you've mentioned chat, you mentioned voice assistants. Where are you both seeing, uh, might be the same, might be different, but I'll put the question to both of you. Is like, where, where are you seeing most of the kind of excitement and activity as far as where these assistants are, are distributed? Because, I mean, the ideal, it obviously is that people build once and deploy everywhere. I've noticed in organizations, some people are wanting to start out here, start with chat, start with IVR, start with Alexa. Where are you seeing most of the excitement and activity occurring as far as where people are, are deploying these assistants? Gee, let's start with it you, is- Gee, and then we'll... Oh, sorry. Sorry, go on. Yeah. No, no, please go ahead, Guy. So this is actually a funny question uh, because we could have multiple answers. There was pre-pandemic and there was post-pandemic. Right. Well, let's, do post, uh, so, let's do pre and post then. That sounds good. Okay. So pre-pandemic, uh, we had two things. The interest and the appetite is for voice. So people want to be on voice. The challenge is... They don't always know what to do and the channels are a little specific. So we get them there fast. They get a skill and action out there, but then how to drive engagement, how to work around some of the challenges that we may talk about later on uh, around. Sometimes it doesn't work exactly the way we imagine. And pre-pandemic, interestingly, uh, and uh, Stacey will probably touch a little more on that, a lot of the organization were actually trying to get their feet wet with mm-hmm. a chatbot. So chatbot was the big thing. And it was a surprise to us because we thought, you know, Chatbot have been around for a while and there's plenty of solutions to get there. But finding um, some systems that will bring you some of the capabilities that we see today that I mentioned earlier, so the key term, natural language understanding and natural language generation, NLU and NLG, bring that to the chatbot. It wasn't as common as we thought. So that was pre-pandemic. People were trying to get there. Right after the pandemic started, the whole drive went for IVR. And for us, it was a very interesting moment because uh, we always forget about it because we think, you know, IVR, we're used to those system with decision tree where it's press one, press two, navigate through the menus. And we didn't realize that they did not get that transformation that was bringing those technology that I was talking about, those virtual agents with those new way of um, interacting with them, they were not 
equipped with that. So a lot of organizations started now discovering some of the powerful things that the technology for voice, because it's a voice also, every, everybody just sometimes think about voice as just voice assistant, but IVR uh, is a voice and actually a simpler voice because you have more control uh, on the platform. And we'll talk about it when we talk about automated speech recognition and why some things are easier than others. But I would say today, um, IVR is getting the bigger push because it's a system that people knows very accessible. And um, when you plug in natural language understanding, natural language generation, you could actually get some pretty uh, powerful applications and that are available uh, actually pretty uh, easy. So I would say post-pandemic IVR is the bigger one, pre-pandemic uh, chatbot uh, was kind of the uh, big one. Mm, interesting. Stacey, any any other things to add to that? Or have you got any, any different perspectives on either pre, post, the activity that you're seeing? I have seen a couple of things that I was going to raise on this topic was we definitely have those customers who are just very um, on the cutting edge, right? Like they want to be innovative and they want to be on voice because they see it as being the next big thing. And those are the customers that are coming to us specifically because of the voice assistance and the ease of doing cross-platform and not having to create a separate skill and a separate action. And the things that those customers are doing are so exciting and really innovative and fun. Uh, we can talk about some of those uh, use cases if, if you're interested in that. Um, but then we have also have a lot of like government customers as well. And those customers are saying, look, we really need to uh, cut down on our call center volume because especially about because of the pandemic, which he kind of mentioned there. So call centers, as far as IVR and chatbots, they're really wanting to cut down on that call center volume and save their staff. And so they're saying, look, we just need a solution on a chatbot or IVR and we need it fast. And so that has how that piece of the business and the pandemic has really caused that to, to speed up a lot. So yeah, we're seeing those two different things. We've got the the innovative cutting edge businesses who are like all about voice. And then we've got those that there's a major need that they have and they feel like the, you know, IVR and chatbot is the, the solution for that need. Mm. It's interesting you mentioned that earlier on, Guy, when you were saying that, you know, IVR is voice. And that's basically a message that we've been trying to hit home since probably February last year, uh, 2020, when we when we started really hitting hard in terms of the podcast, and in terms of uh, everything that we were doing, really started drilling into the contact center. And there's still a there's still a kind of it almost seems like the more people you speak to in chat, they kind of they see similarities with voice, but they don't really identify it as being the same. And the more people you see in voice, when I say voice, I'm talking about voice assistants specifically. They think that voice assistance is voice, and then IVR is customer service is something different. Whereas the reality is, all three things: IVR, chat, messaging. If you want to tag that on there as well with chat, uh, voice assistance. For me, they're all one in the same thing. It's natural language, and the only difference is really one's text and, and one's voice, which most platforms, not all of them, but most of them take the speech and turn it into text anyway. And so it's interesting how you have obviously noticed, noticed that kind of um, similarity. But I wanted to dive into the thing that you mentioned, which I think will probably bring us on to the, the broad topic that we sort of outlined for for this, is that you mentioned that when you're deploying things in, in um, IVR systems, you've got more control. 
So I wonder if you can just elaborate a little bit on that for those who perhaps haven't deployed anything in an IVR. How, how, what kind of additional controls or do you have if you're deploying something into, into a contact center? So, um, and it's very interesting because it was a lot of, uh, for us, learning and really uh, working through. I think we all started from the use case and uh, your point will now make sense to people because you have a use case. If you're just talking general, like at a high level, people will have a hard time. The contact center became really the, for whoever was doing business the way to get into the doors. So when you go into the contact center, there's a couple of things that you have access to. Uh, depending on where you are putting yourself, because you could put yourself in different places. You could put yourself as the uh, what we call the concierge. So you're receiving calls and potentially dispatching them. Or you could put yourself after the dispatch. So the call is coming from somewhere and then you come in and bring your agent there. So the advantage, there's trade-off between both. When you are after the dispatcher, you can have some context, like you know who's calling, maybe they have called before, et cetera, and you have some context that you could use to handle the request. But the main idea and the key thing here when you're bringing your integration is depending on the system that you use, some of them will allow you to get access to the audio. And this is really a key thing where when you're using or when you're building for voice assistant, um, you don't realize how much um, challenges bring the fact that what you just say, it's converting speech into text can bring. And despite everything that you could do good, great conversation design, we have a lot of uh, places where you can learn about those, can great system, great NLU, just that potential loss of information or potential mistranscription. So the speech to text not coming in properly can jeopardize your experience. On the voice assistant, you have a limited ways to mitigate that. On when you're coming in into the contact center or just in general, you yourself putting together uh, an IVR to which you connect a natural language, you can have access and control the transcription and increase things. We'll give one example. We had uh, one of our customer that implemented one of those solution and one of those solution, because they knew uh, their constituents and the people that will access their application, they knew those who were coming and speaking in Spanish. And doesn't mean like it's a great, like it's something specific, but when you're implementing things, if you can tell your system that is transcribing that there is a potential people with Spanish accent, it will help make the transcription better. And just that little, if for those who are a little technical, just specifying the little information in the system that you're using, just make the whole transcription a lot better. And for those who are coming in and usually just because they have an accent, I have one, you sometimes get some weird response just because the transcription is not fully understanding what you're saying. Just by adding that, you get a better results and overall you get an application that uh, is a little better. So one of, for me, the key topic is just the availability of the audio or the ability to help the automated speech recognition 
just be uh, a little better. And then uh, being able to, we could talk more about it, change the way uh, you have the experience with those agents where usually you would come and face the press one, press two, press three, press four. You can have systems where people can navigate just like they would have with intents, et cetera. But the main key thing for me is getting the right information in so you could process it better. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> and you end up being able to debug uh, far better as well and improve things over time better. Like with, with, with the voice assistants, I mean, Google, you can get a transcript, but as you've already said, if the audio, the speech recognition is wrong, the transcripts cocked and then you, <laughs> you're kind of stuck, you know, and, and Amazon don't really give you anything at all. So you're really in no man's land with, with, uh, with Alexa most of the time. Um, and so it's definitely, definitely. And also you can choose the, your speech recognition provider. So you're not stuck with what Amazon give you or what Google give you, you know, you can bring in, um, you know, a, a third party speech recognition provider and actually train that on, you know, your data. And so I, I definitely agree that the control you have over there is absolutely immense. The other thing that, um, that it'd be interesting to get your perspectives on is from a, from a creative point of view, when you create like a, something for a voice assistant, I think the people kind of understand now how to use voice assistants like like Siri and Google Assistant and, and Alexa. And they've kind of been trained over the years as much as we would like them to be fully conversational and really humanistic or kind of like natural. The reality is most of them, most of the time, and this is just as much to do, I think, with the platforms than it is the people creating stuff. Most of the time they are a little bit kind of rigid and also people don't necessarily just speak in their own language they kind of know the right thing to say now alexa play x and, and it's like the way that people converse with the, with the voice assistants i think is, is different to how they actually have a conversation whereas with the contact center you call a number you get put through to something you hear a bot but you're not necessarily in alexa mode necessarily and so you might ask it questions you might do other things you might behave slightly different to it and so when you're creating in that kind of ivr space have you noticed the difference in terms of how you create the interaction because of the way that people behave when they engage with that compared to a voice assistant i'll put that to both of you as if you've both got any kind of experience with that uh i can definitely take uh, that one so that's an interesting one where for us um it's always and uh, i think you're doing workshop you're doing talks and uh, you must have experienced that when you exchange with people it's hard to explain to people because at the root of that particular question that you're asking there's a question of how do end user interact mm. there are solutions obviously we always recommend that um in the contact center, the good thing that you have is usually you have some history. So the first thing we'll do when you come in, it's like, hey, we have this platform, you can build everything. It's like, great. But before you jump into that, can you take a look at some historical data just to see what exactly people are asking? So don't necessarily drive from what you would want, but maybe from how people are interacting. Because even though you say, I'm picking up the phone, and um, I have some control, I have some freedom. It's still the way, so the first thing we'll share with you is one insight, the talk to an agent, <laughs> even with the <laughs> even with the, the bot, trust me, is the first function, is yeah. the first, yeah. the first thing we build is, uh, so customer will come in and say, 
okay, um, get me an intent so people can yeah. jump to the agent. Although yeah. we have the, the all NLU, everything yeah, is yeah. the API, everything is like, um, can they skip and get to the agent? So that's one thing where um, obviously, even though uh, they interact differently and sometimes you can have more natural things, you can definitely bring in uh, some historical data. The challenge with the voice assistant is unless you go and do proper user testing, but it's costly. Sometimes you have smaller business. They can't necessarily spin up a proper uh, user experience research. One thing we do is we actually, that's the reason why we strongly believe in it has to go fast. We actually get you to the voice assistant as fast as possible. The reason for that is something that we did not mention. We have built-in analytics. The way we solve that and the way we've seen people evolve is not necessarily people coming in and knowing the differences between, okay, I'm building for IVR, I'm building for this. It's more, let me get something and use the analytics to inform. Because a lot of people will have preconceived ideas unless they run testing, but that's not as frequent. And we can have those, you know, high level conversation. No, but I'm telling you users actually, they don't really drive intent. They really try to get the command. So, but no commands are not a good thing. I would want conversation repair, all of this technicality. What we say is, look, get some things out there, start to get some queries in, and use the analytics to inform and get that historical data that you may not have and just improve quickly over time. So really the feedback to, I, I imagine something, I do some role play, I imagine my conversation, somebody comes in, try to skip through or try to do something else. Okay, cool. I may miss that user, but let me quickly improve my skill, rebuild my model and make it available. And that's for us kind of the key uh, of the things that we've been seeing is less there is a standard way just because of the variety in the industry. Like uh, you'll have government uh, call center are different from retail call center. So there's no, for me, holistic way to do things. What we said is we can try something, but the better or the things we are looking for people to do is quickly learn and iterate that user research that you did not do, use the production data to understand and improve over time. Hmm. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's interesting that, because um, have you found, so this might be one for you, Stacey, given that, you're, that you work kind of closely with the customers, like that description you give there, Guy, is very much kind of, if you take a typical project, we always say that the go live is in the middle of the project, basically, because you need to do something to work out what needs to be done. That might be listening to calls, it might be profiling the the use cases, all that kind of stuff, finding a nice high volume, but not overly complex place to start. So you've got an initial bit of stuff to do before you go live or something. But typically in a typical project, like a website build or something, the go live is kind of the end. So it's like, let's do all of our time, let's put all our time and effort in, and then let's go live with it. Whereas with this, it's very much like going live is just part of it. It's not, it's not the end. And so all of that data that you start learning from, you know, whether that's your conversational patterns, whether that's your training data that keeps getting fed through, you, that's when you really start learning. So Stacey, when you're kind of onboarding customers, when you're working with customers, how do you, have you noticed any, um, 
what, what should we say, cultural, uh, in terms of like business cultural obstacles when it, when you come to this uh, this methodology, if people are used to that waterfall go live at the end, like how, how do your clients typically take this this methodology of let's just get something out there, then let's learn and refine? What's, what's their usual kind of, um, you know, appetite for that kind of thing? I think I would have to go back to what I said earlier, where we've got those different pockets of customers. We've got the ones that are, uh, you know, really innovative and wanting to do super cool things. And to be honest with you, those are the ones that are harder to convince to go live earlier because they they want to create this really uh, cool thing and they want to make it perfect before before launching it. So those customers are a little bit harder to convince to go live faster. The ones that I described where they have have a use case and they need a solution and they need it right now, those they're ready. They're like, yes, we we've got, you know, five FAQ pages on our website. We want to auto ingest those. We want to get those live on, you know, a chatbot, IVR, uh, voice assistance. And then we're just going to continuously improve as we go. We have one major enterprise on the West coast that did that. They launched in uh, like three days using uh, content that they already had written. And they started in like the first week they had their chatbots at a success rate of like 85%. Today, if you go to that chatbot and you ask questions, there's over a 92% chance that whatever question you ask, you're going to get the correct answer because they've used that feedback loop on a daily basis. They look at those analytics, they see those not, those not understood messages, and then they add either question variants or uh, new content to their knowledge base. So it, yeah, it really does depend. But those, like I said, the ones that have the immediate need, they're happy to jump on board with that, you know, launching live sooner rather than later. Interesting. And I want to add a little bit to that uh, because that mm-hmm. comes from somewhere because we chatted with them. And one of the thing is for a lot of the, those organization, they've been used to trying out those projects, but because of the time it took to get to a launch, um, they would think the way you have imagined, like, they would sometimes not do it just because they know, okay, if I have to go and get this, 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 this approval, I'd rather not do it. And that's what we actually found where we had people willing to go, but because of the path to get approval, resources, et cetera, they actually ended up not doing it. So when we came in and like, hey, we solved all of this, there's a little to provision and you just do your thing and press this button, it's up and live. We actually, they just had the argument to make the case internally as to why proceed. Because one of the challenges, if you were to ask people, they won't always, so today it's a little better, there's a few more platforms that can help, but it still takes time. Where if you just come and say, hey, you focus on the content. Once you have it, you press here. There is no need to sign up, etc. There's no approval needed from anyone. Then you get them to adopt that mindset. And the second thing that is important, what Stacy said is, if you come and talk to people about the feedback loop of machine learning, they'll be lost. It's like, hey, precision, recall, etc. If you talk to them very concretely, here's your analytics, here's your not understood or no match, uh, and again, the terminology in the industry, (laughs) however you want to call that, but here's the sentence. So you're seeing the sentence and you just have to add that here. When you teach them that, then they become empowered and they now start trusting, especially 
the scores that Stacy gave are available to them. So you see, like I'm at 85, and over the week, I see like a little graph showing that I have improved. And if you are able to materialize things like that and explain it in the way that Stacy was able to picture, it's actually not so much um, a challenge because people don't choose necessarily waterfall out of, oh, I have agile or I have feedback loop and I choose waterfall. It's something that they are used to and how other projects were conducted. And then that's the mindset that they have. But if you expose other things, but that still relate to the things that they are actually trying to do, that process is not as difficult uh, as we would sometimes think. That was a surprise to us to see once you solve those problems for them and they just have to focus on one thing, making the case for you, for your tool, or just for conversational AI in general has become a little smoother uh, to progress with. Mm. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's very cultural, isn't it? I think people don't think about the best way to approach a project most of the time. It's just they're on a hamster wheel of doing it. So waterfall just becomes the, the kind of go-to cultural thing, doesn't it? Um, we mentioned around when you deploy in certain environments, you have more control over speech recognition, getting audio files, listening to them to figure out what might have went wrong, retraining ASR potentially to, to clean it up, depending on your kind of use case or what have you. Um, we haven't really spoke that much about the NLU, so I'm wondering whether you can just share either an example or, or reasons why um, having a degree of control and ownership over the NLU side of things is important for clients and, and, and businesses wanting to start deploying these kind of assistance. Yes, I can talk about that. Um, so it's very interesting because uh, the first thing is like uh, when we say ownership, because owner has multiple meaning, um, <laughs> there's levels of ownership. Uh, and I'll go with a scale of, you code your own NLU all the way to, uh, let's say, for example, the voice assistant, which will be the one that you have uh, probably less control over. Mm -hmm. So the key thing that people, I think, don't usually have conversation about, and I'm always surprised because when we talk about a no match, I'm not sure why. A lot of the time, people will think that the no match is coming from an NLU that is binary. It's either it found it or it didn't find it. And if you didn't find it, then you have to, you know, work your way through things. The reality is the NLU is a little more uh, nuanced than that. When there is a no match, it's not like it didn't find anything. It's this concept that is really key and that will answer your original question, which is the confidence score. So effectively, whenever you're making a request, that request gets a confidence score of how much the machine learning that you've built is sure that this particular intent, this particular entities is the right for that particular incoming query. And that's really, really important because when there is a no match, no match are not just 100%. If you look into details, but if you have access to those, and that's where owning part of the NLU is important. If you have access to those, you will see that if you look at everything that was considered, some of the intents that might be the good answer were actually just with a low confidence score. And one of the trick that, uh, of one of the challenges that we've seen is 
if you just solve problems by just adding the utterance, you expose yourself to something that is hard to conceptualize, but sometimes you can deter your language model by just adding an utterance. And it doesn't show when you have five to 10 utterance, but when you become a bigger organization with more intent, or if your intent have plenty of utterances, there's this concept that is that you only see a little bit at scale, which is the balance of utterance between intent. And the key things of owning the NLU is mostly when you try to understand, because sometimes people are just, yeah, this chatbot doesn't work or this thing doesn't work, but why does it not work? And usually people will just jump into, oh, it's because it's missing data or because the conversation is not correct. That might be true, but the first steps into knowing that's the reason is to know exactly how the machine resolved your particular query coming in. So really, there's two things for people that would like to kind of, unless we talk about it further. The first one is what is the confidence score? Like why did it decide to not proceed with an intent? And the second thing is what were the other considered intent? And those two information are actually available in any natural language understanding platform that you own. Like if you take anyone, so the ones that you program, Lex, Dialogflow itself, Lewis, um, Watson, uh, NLU, they give you that information. The challenge with the voice assistant, which are embedding part of those capabilities, is they don't give you that information. And that's very hard because when something goes wrong, the ASR is a problem, but the, how it queried the language model is another layer of problem. And when you don't own that particular piece, you find yourself at, how am I trying to fix that? And then you start thinking, oh, I need to add that. I need to change my model. I need to change my conversation. But in reality, when you do that, you might actually make things worse just because you don't know that the problem is coming from there. So for me, the main thing or the main reason why I would suggest to people to try as best as they can to have some ownership is not so much to be able to control. It's mostly to have the visibility on those two things that I mentioned. What were the scores? Like how did the machine proceed this? And what were the other considerations? So out of the machine made a choice, what were the other options that it had so that I understand, and I just I try to understand why it picked one over the other. Mm, interesting. So in that situation then, let's say that you're looking at, um, Let's say, because I'm assuming you kind of alluded to it earlier on, Stacey, that you have um, business users, and I think Guy, you spoke about it as well. Like, if you explain to people this bit here, sentence wasn't understood for X reason, and what you need to do is then populate it into here and train it, that's a really simple way of of explaining to somebody how to keep training the model. But when you start getting into things like confidence scores, how do you kind of to someone who knows nothing about it how do you explain how to interpret those those two things confidence score and the other considerations is that something that you would do is that something that the the end user would do and how do you get them as a as a as someone who knows nothing about it how do you get them to then remedy that situation 
the funny thing is they do. It's funny because it's not even us. What happens is they will ask you because they see the analytics. So they see the query coming in and they see the response. So, and I think we got one today, Stacey. Why yeah. did this response come up? So they send the email. Why did this yes. response come up? So yeah, they asked a question and they got an answer. It just wasn't the correct answer. So they were trying to figure out why. And well, the, 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 the end user asked why, or the customer using the using your platform. No, no, the, 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 uh, the Zamo's customer. All right, okay, yeah, fair enough, yeah, okay. The so they sent you an email saying, "Why has this happened?" Yeah, because they checked the analytics, and because we we did uh, add this, add this, add this. That works when it's like a no match, and we don't get into the technical detail. But the second piece, the reason why that topic will come up is when you see the request that came in and it just went to another intent. And that's a, that, that just lays the foundation for us to have the conversation because we will take that, look at the transcript, and then here's what's under the hood. And then they'll say, oh, okay. So I know this was, this came in because it's, let's say 60%. And that leads us to the first thing we tell them, which is every system that you use have an inner threshold of what is picked and what is not. If you own your NLU, you choose the threshold, which is what we highly suggest and allow people for us to do. If you don't, that threshold is chosen for you. But Best of luck at to, is it 80, is it 75, is it 60, is it 90? Is it too sensitive or is it not enough sensitive? And how do you deal with that? Especially because for some of our customers, it's not the same across all question. So it's not like I want 75 for everyone. There are sensitive topics. So things that maybe require some, um, have some criticality in it, like, uh, life threatening or things like that, they would want the thing to be like, not like they rather just accept something critical than miss something critical and vice versa. There are things where it's not as critical or if anything, just redirect to an agent in case you're not sure, at least we'll get to an agent in place and talk through it. And that's how we bring that topic up. So I explained to you because you're a little more familiar with the NLU itself, but from our customer perspective, less than the NLU, it's more we are, because of the analytics, they are seeing those challenges. Because the, the difficulty is if I have to explain to you at a high level, precision and recall machine learning, that's difficult unless you are a technical person. But when you look at your analytics, and you tell me, no, this one I would prefer if there's any, if it's not sure, I prefer that it goes to an agent or oh, this one, it's okay. Uh, if it doesn't respond, let me change this so I can have a, like a tentative, like upsell or conversation repair. Being able to articulate that comes from the analytics, but just at a high level for people to enable that, I would highly recommend to anyone, it's important for you to have access to that information. So you could do that work versus facing challenges 
and having to guess which one is impacting. Because again, some challenges only occur on the channel itself. So for example, if you're using Amazon, if I'm using my Echo Dot and I'm using the new Echo Show, you have no guarantee that the two will behave the same for the same person talking. Like it's hard for you to control that. So you want to at least control, okay, let's say anything can happen, but at least if I get the right text, I am sure, or at least I know what happens to it. I would always encourage people, do your best you can, but try to control that. Mm. Interesting. Kane, we have a, a customer right now that we're working with that has, and yes, you're going you're gonna to question my number here, but they have 36,000 topics in their knowledge base. And wow. you can only imagine how nuanced those, those questions are and how similar some of those are. So for a customer like that, having that ability to control that, that percentage like Guy was just describing there just makes such a difference in the success rate of that bot that they are building. Mm, absolutely. I'm, I'm impressed how you've managed to devolve a lot of that stuff to the customer because a lot of this stuff is, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of the platforms, even if the platform itself gets that gets that data, a lot of them, you know, I'm, I'm talking about the, the, the drag and drop sort of toolings and that, not the NLU providers themselves, but you know, a lot, a lot of the platforms tend to have analytics. Here's what was missed. Um, but there's only a few I've seen that have things like confidence scores. Um, and, and, and a lot of them are managed services as well. And so the ability to have that level of detail and to explain how to use it and to then give control over it to the end user, I think is a, is a bit of a, a unique approach. And for us, more than that, it's important for the user because the only one who can solve that is technically actually the customer building. Mm. Because I mentioned that it comes from... Because if I have to decide, I want this question to go to an agent, it's hard for you as a provider, as a platform, despite your greatest data scientists and everything, to know the business. And I think you sometimes, I think you talked about that a lot of time, which is the conversation goals and what we are really trying to build and how you know we could use the conversation to serve that. But the key thing here is at the end, the one building the application they know where they're trying to bring their users. And if we were to solve that, we would make assumption, but we don't know. And again, uh, the challenge or the beauty of working with multiple uh, industry, so government, and that's, I think for me, everyone should work with government because you learn a lot. And <laughs> retail are completely different. Where government, what the where the constituents go or the information the constituent get is critical. They would make that thing the threshold. I think if they could put a ninety nine percent, they're rather just no 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 call us if they're in doubt <laughs> than uh, risk saying the wrong thing that could jeopardize the relationship. Versus in retail, they are okay sometimes with the conversation failing. So they could potentially try to repair. So they are okay with, I can get you the wrong things because they assume, uh, and it's sometimes true, customers could be uh, forgiving because people sometimes will, and that's true, would think people are coming with the, to the chatbot with lower expectation. So 
they could be okay with the uh, don't put that too low. I rather anything just get a response uh, where the government would be no. If there is any doubt, give my uh, my uh, customer service line and get my people to talk to uh, an agent if there's any doubt. And you can't make that decision holistically. There is no good answer. Just people have to choose. That's the reason why for us, the focus outside of the capability, because it's a problem to solve was get that info to the customer and trust them into making the choice that works for them so that their application meets their goal. And that's the key. And that's the reason why I think solving that holistically in a managed way is probably a very tough challenge versus the one that is building. If you equip them, they can actually do uh, really great things. Mm. A couple of other things with government is that people don't have a choice if they have to contact the government. Uh, and, and, and basically the government's got all the power. Isn't it? They can go to another shop, but they can't go to another government. And so you've got, it's very interesting. I've, I've had a lot of experience working with government in, in this and also in, in general digital service design. And it is a different ball game, you know. It's, um, and the cultures of government are all the same all over the world, very risk averse. So you need to be fucking accurate. Um, yes. But yeah. <laughs> but um, so, so we've mentioned a couple of different NLU providers and all that kind of stuff. Um, with Zamo, you know, if you onboard a customer, is it a proprietary NLU? Do you have an open door to all providers? Are you working with a particular provider? Like, how, how does all that kind of uh, how does all that kind of sound of things work? Uh, so we work with uh, Lewis. It's not a bring your own uh, NLU uh, provider, mm-hmm. which would be a BU, BYO NLU. That's not a bad term. No. Yeah. So we are using uh, Lewis and uh, we definitely, um, we let customers, so it's not like a secret or anything. We let customer uh, know uh, about it. We kind of scope uh, the difference uh, systems that were available. Uh, Louis brought a lot of things uh, for us. We recommend that. And uh, some people may just say, uh, okay, I'm just going to use Louis myself. And we uh, encourage people to do uh, so. Our platform brings a little more. But when it comes to NLU, uh, a lot of things that we've seen, again, from customer use cases, the um, support for languages, so the amount of languages. And one key thing, it might be a little technical, but um, the way you deal with languages is some NLU, um, not all, allow you to build language model in a particular locale. So, for example, I can say, all right, I will make a language model which will resolve things in, for example, um, French Canada. And mm. Lewis is one of those who offers you the ability to say this language model is in French Canada. Some other system actually use a translation. And because of that, the performance is not as great. Where if you have a system that allows you, and there are others out there, but Lewis is the one that uh, for us performed the better, allow you to create in those languages. So languages was a big one. And also just the tooling to be able to do a lot of the things that uh, we've mentioned, getting access to confidence core, 
um, improving and allowing people to tailor because when you have to do that routing, giving more importance to certain intents or to certain questions, or even just uh, how do you manage entities, Lewis offers uh, a lot of things. And if you build properly around it, you can actually get a powerful uh, natural language understanding system. So for us, uh, we get, uh, and also just to mention government, <laughs> they have a lot of those certification that you need to be able to uh, proceed on uh, a lot of projects. Uh, so um, compliance is another thing. Uh, Lewis has, uh, if you look at the page for the compliance, it's uh, aggressive and small fonts, <laughs> but uh, you have uh, you have all of that out of the box. So you know, when people are coming in, they know it's Lewis uh, in the back for us, and uh, we don't allow people to bring their own uh, natural language, but we do ingest from other people just to bring that back into Lewis. We have solutions for that as well. Mm. Interesting. It's um, I love my. I absolutely do love Microsoft's tool, and I think with enterprises as well, everyone's using Microsoft to some degree, so it's a lot easier to get it through the door as well. Correct. Um, <laughs> but um, but it's interesting because, like the way I, the way that I've been thinking about like all all of this tooling, um, over the last few kind of I suppose months or year is that on an NLU side. And, and maybe to some degree on the speech recognition side, although the speech recognition side, I think, is slightly different because, um, so, you know, some providers are really honed in to try and nail Spanish. Some have really honed in to try and nail, you know, what French. And so it's like ASR at the moment, there is still a, dif a, a difference. You'll, there'll be a notable difference depending on where, what you're trying to do in which locale, depending on what provider you should go for. NL over time it might homogenize, but there's, there's a load of work to be done with you know gender and race and all this kind of stuff needs fixing. Yeah. So I think we're miles away from from speech recognition providers being kind of like all the same um, as far as their capabilities. NLU it's it's maybe slightly and maybe a different story. I'd be just interested in getting your both potentially your perspectives around the NLU providers. Maybe include Raza in that as well and, and others and other systems that have proprietary NLUs. Do you think that that it is or will be kind of commoditized or do you think that there will be kind of like an ultimate platform that everyone gravitates to? Microsoft is getting a lot of traction. A lot of people are going towards Microsoft. Like how do you see that side of things playing out in future? Do you think they'll all be commoditized and, and very similar? Do you think there'll be a one winner, lots more players? Like how would you describe the future of NLU provision? Would you say? I think they'll converge. And again, I don't have a crystal ball, so it's just me <laughs> yeah. uh, not speaking on their behalf. I think, they will converge with a few players because it will depend. Um, so if you, you if you need out of the box use case, so you've seen Google has announced Lambda, Microsoft is teaming up with OpenAI, et cetera. So there's out of the box, we are trained on English literature and hopefully bring more and more. And you have those generative models. So pre-trained systems will get better. So tomorrow, and you already have that when you work with 1P capabilities, like videos, audio, et cetera. Tomorrow, if you need something that is common, uh, like, uh, I don't know, uh, cooking or uh, playing music, et cetera, uh, there will be a few, but they'll all be kind of the same because they'll be trained to a certain extent. When you go into specifics, 
And that's the thing where you'll have what was before Nuance, where Nuance had really specific domains. Like you couldn't just pick up a dragon, like you had a dragon for medical, you have a dragon for car, et cetera. Like you had like specific um, domain uh, where you have pre-trained and capabilities. Like if you take uh, a Nuance device, your ASR for, I don't know, like the medical stuff, was pretty good, although it's pretty challenging the way people pronounce things, et cetera. So I'd see that there will be a few and a, probably the bigger platform just converging and owning the, let's say the general use case and offering little nuances here and there based on how much data set each have. And then you'll still have a whole bunch of smaller player, very specialized, meaning my NLU will work for this particular use case but will not perform well for cooking, but it will be very good for, I don't know, government uh, driving license renewal. It will be very good for that, really powerful for that, but not for the rest. And I think it will still be like a lot of smaller player, very specialized, and uh, the bigger platform, which have computing power, bigger data set, et cetera, owning the, I would call that the general day to like everyday use case, like uh, mm. turn on my blinder, the commands, all the things that I do, order my food, et cetera, book my whatever, like bookings, et cetera. But for the specific niche domain, then you'll have players that will be like uh, uh, what was a nuance back then, which are less familiar for the general public, but for professionals, they'll go to uh, to those, and you have a lot of those smaller startups that focuses on this one use case with this one set of users. Hopefully, that makes sense. Mm, yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Demand specific, wicked. Um, so we'll we'll wrap up with one final question, Stacey. If you were um, if there's people listening to this who um, are either looking to switch platforms, interested in experimenting, or even people who haven't got up and running with anything yet, looking to get started, what's your kind of your kind of advice or, or top tips apart apart from obviously calling Zamo? What's your what's your kind of top <laughs> tips for, for for brands, whether it's government retailers, whoever it might be, starting out on their conversational journey? What's your kind of top tips? Uh, I would say first would be start uh, with FAQ content. Start with uh, Q&A. That is kind of the foundation of your conversational AI presence. It's the questions that the businesses that we work with, it's their customers, the questions that they're already asking. And so it gives you a place to start. And then you've got that ability to look at those analytics and see what other questions are being asked. So you can build then multi-turn conversations to um, to answer you know routine work Flows or or etc. to things that are you know constantly being called into your call center. But by starting with FAQ content, getting that out there, and then letting your customers drive where you go with your conversational AI, I think you're going to see a lot greater success um, versus just saying, "Here's what we're going to do," and then hoping that it works. I think letting the customers drive what your conversational AI um, solution looks like, I think, is a lot more successful. Um, the other thing is is 
really working on, and I know, Kane, this is something that's near and dear to your heart. I hear you talk about it a lot, which is that conversation design. And that's something that not a lot of people are aware of. And so that's a lot, that's an education tool that we work with. Uh, part of our customer success program is training our customers on how to do that conversation design and, you know, conversation repair and all of the things where we see those sort of conversations failing. So those would be my top two is being okay with starting small, if you will, even though FAQ content is not small, but starting there and then building your way up and not being not being afraid to start uh, at that at that point and then build from there. It, uh, hopefully that answers your question. Mm, definitely, definitely. Guy, anything to add? Any top tips for people starting out? Hey, don't be afraid to own NLU. Yeah, that would be my thing <laughs> where um, it's Especially, I hope we have people that are not as familiar with the domain. It is not as complicated. So don't be afraid. And second thing is failure is not my chatbot doesn't work. Failure mm-hmm. is my chatbot doesn't work and I'm not trying to find out why. And for me, that would be the key thing. So what Stacy said, start small and there are solutions. So for people that are scared, you have ways to um, just get of your IVR traffic coming in, 5% of your people on the website seeing the chatbot, like it doesn't have to be displayed to everyone. So there's a way to start small, not just like, hey, I'm going out there and my reputation, et cetera. Don't be afraid, there are ways, but just go out there. Go out there and see. Sometimes you'll just look at the analytics and there are zero queries to your chatbot. So you just save yourself a whole (laughs) bunch of time trying to do conversation design. And second, yeah, don't be afraid. Uh, it's okay to learn. There are systems out there. And if you find people, it doesn't necessarily have to be us, but some people can break it down from what's happening to how you can solve that. And that journey is not as bad, doesn't take as much time and bring powerful results. And we could share many of those of our enlightenment from customers just with smaller pieces, just the fact that you get people to engage with you i think don't forget the end goal and don't be afraid of the journey it's a good journey to be in and tooling and equipment is better and definitely uh go ahead and try that would be my uh, my guidance nice like it i like it well i have absolutely loved this conversation it's been absolutely fantastic i really appreciate you both joining us uh stacy where can people go to learn a bit more about zamark and hear them beating the door down now typing away trying to reach out where can people go to, to learn a bit more <laughs> So our website is simply uh, zamo.ai. And if they want to reach out for a demo, there's a link on that website, or there's also hello at zamo.ai. And we will get you in touch with with someone who can schedule uh, that live demo and build a custom demo in a day for you. Um, So happy to do that so that you can share that with your other stakeholders at your organization. Nice. Appreciate it. We will put that link as well as many other links, uh, your social profiles, all that kind of stuff will stick in the show notes. Any other any other final thoughts, parting words that you've got for the VUX World audience? Stacey? Oh, I, I was just going to say, I'm sure Guy has, he has so much wisdom. I'm sure he has something that he's dying to share. Yeah, so, well, I have, yes, it is true. And I have a, just a little message. Um, so outside of all these things, um, I always want to call out uh, whenever I get an opportunity. Um, conversational AI is a good way to 
have and help with another topic that is dear to us, which is accessibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just don't forget when you're building coming up and you know making voice only or making chat only, don't forget we don't all access the services the same way. So I mentioned that earlier, like I was kind of making fun of the menu into the IVR, but a pro tips, keep that menu. There's a few people that because of their accents, because of speech impairments, are not able to actually communicate back. So they would appreciate that press one or press two uh, to navigate. Vice versa for your um, bot. I see we've seen uh, a lot of chat bot. Don't forget if a screen readers come on here and you put a whole bunch of emojis or images, that is not great. So be mindful of those. So out of all that topic, NLU, all those great things, making conversational apps, please make them accessible. That would be my final thoughts. Hopefully it reach some people in your community. Definitely. I definitely concur with that. That is, uh, that is fantastic advice. Thank you very much. Uh, appreciate you both joining us. Uh, really, really do. That was, that was an immense conversation. Next week, we're talking to Davide Petromala of Avaya. So we'll actually probably continue some similar conversations to what we've been having in terms of voice enabling IVRs. So we're going to be talking about what Avaya have got, what Avaya are up to, and, uh, and what kind of insights they're seeing in the marketplace. So looking forward to that. Please do join us next week. Geet. Stacey, this has been absolutely immense. Thank you so much. Uh, and we look forward to speaking to you again, hopefully soon. Awesome. Thank you, Kane. Thank you. Cheers.